0: recovery. We're going to do something a little different. This is going to be the first of a series of talks that we're going to call Big Book Conversations. Um, We don't really know how many there'll be, but as a way of starting, I think James and I want to just give you guys a little introduction to uh, our experience with the Big Book and why we think that this is valuable. So <laughs> I set you up if you want to go first.
1: Oh, that's all right. That's for me. All right. Um, so I'm an addict in recovery. My name is James. Um, my sobriety date is April 6, 2001. Piers is my sponsor. Um, and he took me through the big book at that time. Big book of AA, like for me, for like for a lot of people, is a really significant part of my recovery. Um, and the experiences I have with that book and the relationship that I have with that book um, over the last almost 20 years, pretty close to 20 years. Um, has been well, it's been all over the place, but it's been significant. It's like sort of defined who I am as a recovering person. Um, maybe I'll stop there and let you introduce yourself a little bit in that context too. Or you want me to just kind of tell Well, little bit I would <laughs> like bit to talk about is just. Yeah
0: the extent of your experience working with the book
1: over that time. Oh, sure. Yeah. All right. So I guess it's, so I'll go into story mode a little bit and let me see where we get. I am. Um, I'm not going to tell you the whole story of how I got to the point where I met the big book. Cause that's sort of a whole story in itself. But, um, I sort of meet the big book for the first time in a church basement in Farmington, Maine. Um, there's, I was told by you, actually, we met, outside of AA we met through through Jess I believe yeah partner and she introduced us because I was talking crazy and she said you should meet my boyfriend (laughs) and um, we went to see a movie or something you could sort of tell that I was off kilter and recommended that I try out this Thursday night meeting so I walk into the church basement um, looking for an AA meeting and in my mind what I imagine an AA meeting to be is a bunch of uncomfortable people being uncomfortable together and calling it recovery, (laughs) People who are not, like they're not good in their own skins and it's just like this kind of like, oh, it it sucks to be sober, but we're taking the edge off by bitching about it a little bit and sharing a cigarette and a cup of coffee. And um, that was what I was used to. I found this little room in a church basement and there were these sort of like happy people who greeted me, are you here for the meeting? Hi. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not just that they were like peppy, it was like that they were like okay and genuinely interested in me and how I was doing. And that was like off-putting for one, cause I'm like scared of people, but also like not what I expected at all. It's not how my experience of AA. Um, and then I saw the big book on the table. There was big, they were putting the blue books all over the table. And I kind of knew that that was the big book. and That was my first introduction is that maybe people who read this book or use this book had a different kind of approach to recovery than what I was used to um, I'll, I'll gloss over a bunch of stuff. So like working in the big book, which we, I think we'll get into, like our experiences doing that for the first time. Um, that was huge for me, radically transformative of who I thought myself to be and who I was in the world. Um, started sponsoring people through the big book. It sort of became this map, not only for how I could get better, but for how I could show people how to get better um, took many people through the book, not always successful, mostly not successful, but people got well. Um, it also became like the centerpiece of the meetings that we had. We had these meetings where we would read out of the book and share our experiences with it. And so it became a means for like sharing the message with other alcoholics and other addicts to help them catch the same recovery we had. Um, so years and years of like having meetings like that, sponsoring people that way. Um, and then uh, for about two years I worked in um, a treatment play facility where they were f- sort of founded and operated by going through the big book and taking the guests through the big book up through a seventh step at the most sometimes a little further Um, some people who stayed longer went into eight or nine Um, but that was like again maybe we'll get into this that was a very different orientation with the big book and in a lot of ways sort of jaded me to what the big book is capable of what it can do um and it's kind of changed my relationship to ship to it since then so is that kind of the, the yeah part and, you're looking for yeah. And the one thing
0: i would just also mention <clears throat> about things is that uh, he like myself and i think he took to it with even more alacrity um got very interested in
1: researching sure Okay, and its origin oh, yeah, and, and those early communities. One of the first questions I had after getting well was like, where did this come from? Why didn't Why didn't anybody tell me this when I first met the twelve steps or when I first got into recovery? How come this book that started the whole thing is largely forgotten and the practices that are in it are largely forgotten? Like, if you can feel the way I do and transform the way I just have, just by reading this book and doing what it says, why isn't it everywhere? Um, and so that question led me to do a bunch of historical research. Um, I started the website um, stepstudy.org mostly to sort of chart my, you know, loose timeline of how things went together. It's an excellent website. Um, it hasn't been touched in years, but if the stuff that's there is still, mm. still gets attention, still gets, I think it's some people find it useful. Um, and then I got a master's in theology and did some research by doing ethnographic interviews with people in my, um, sponsorship circle. So interviewing them about their process through the 12 steps. Um, those are some great interviews. Uh, and this I wrote a master's thesis about that in my PhD program. Now, um, I've researched recovery writing. So I've interviewed a, a broad range of people in recovery and different fellowships and talked about how they write in relationship to their recovery. A lot of those people were big book folks. And so they talked about, they're actually remarkably very different ideas of how to use the big book and implement it in their writing practices and in their recovery. Um, so yeah, I have kind of a broad perspective on how that works as well.
0: Yeah, and that's that's why I think I'd rather be talking to you about this than anybody. In fact, I know I would. Cool. So, you know, James is great researcher, fascinating writing. Um, we're both um, addicted to reading, so it's kind of
1: perfect. Yeah.
0: So just real quick about me. Um, I've been in, rec- well, My sobriety dates like 26 years ago. Um, I don't think I was into recovery until I met the big book. And, you know, my story is not unlike James's in that I caught fire, became fascinated, started doing research, went and studied theology, just like he did, got a master's in it. Um, My time in seminary, was more informed by my big book experience, my step experience than my seminary experience informed my step experience meaning that's how powerful my step experience was. Um, and you know I'm not I'm just just for because I don't care. Um, James worked at this place called the Plymouth House which I was the one of the co-founders of. And so, for nine and a half years, I was taking people through the book in that context, which does change it. Um, and then, for the last five years or so, I've been doing something similar. So I've got around 15 years of like intensively working with groups of people in the big book. Um, and I and I do think that you know I think James would agree that the more you're the more you're engaged in this especially because it's a text the um, your relationship to it changes and if it doesn't change you're going to lose your mind yeah it's just going to become this rope thing and I think for a lot of people it does um, so I think where you got two guys here that you know approaching 50 years of recovery who have got more reps in this thing than a lot of people and a lot more research certainly So with that, I thought we would start the conversation with, um, you know, this thing that was done with me that I did with James and I do with everybody, which is I point out at the very beginning that the book says you can be recovered from alcoholism. And that's what Don P, the famous Don P did with me. He pointed that out and I, you know, I was taken aback. There's this sort of dramatic effect to it that, you know, what do you mean? And then eventually, as you go through it, he starts breaking that down. And where we are now, this community, at least associated with us, is that someone's recovered. When they no longer have the mental obsession to do drugs, so they are not preoccupied with doing drugs. Drugs or alcohol, they're not riddled with the thought of it. They're never ambushed by it. They don't have to struggle mentally with the idea of getting high. And the way we read the book, and you know, there's textual basis for this, is that you can expect that to happen um, after amends after the 10th step and we both know or after the 9th step we both know a lot of people who have for whom that's true um and we know people for whom it's not but the numbers of people for whom it's true or those people they seem to there are certain type of recovery that should be paid attention to right at the very end let's
1: yeah and let's, um, let's there's a lot of things that in what yep. you said I think that we can pick apart a little bit first one is let's just go right back to the term recovered yep so Tomres talks to you and you do this to me too yeah he said look right here it's on the title page over and I think that I think that might be the only place it occurs but it certainly occurs like right up front oh, no. well, it's, in the, it's in the four of the first edition and oh, on right. on, on. yeah no it's all over <clears throat> so this is how they recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Right. Um, and so there's like a number of things that people would pick apart there, the mind and body part is, is part of it. And we can recover from that. Um, but the way it was presented to me, and I probably do too, is that recovered has this sort of weight and significance. That's different from what people say when they say I'm recovering, I'm a recovering drug addict, or I'm in recovery from X or Y addiction. Um, because, and, and so this is part of the difference of what I was experiencing when I first walked in the church basement and saw that people were different from what I was used to. Um, and this is kind of a broad generalization, but like people who said that they were recovering were sort of expressing this theory. That's not entirely wrong that like, you're going to be an addict for the rest of your life. Um, and your clean time or your sobriety is just sort of a measure of time from your last use. And that, that time is sort of filled with the kind of struggles that go along with not having the thing that makes you feel really good and you're addicted to. Um, and so ideally over time it gets easier and the problems that go along with sober life get a little easier or you get your bumps and bruises and get used to it. And you you just kind of go on going on. Um, a lot of people would phrase that more positively than I just have, but that was like the emotional feeling I got from it as a newcomer, like, oh, really you're 30 years sober and you're miserable and you're complaining about it in a meeting. Uh, that doesn't seem that attractive to me, but I guess this is what we do. This is what, this is the best we can hope for is a sort of like life always sucks, but at least we're sober here together. Right. Um, and there's that kind of, and then for sure, there was this camaraderie around that, like we're here, toughing it out together and loving each other and right. Giving hugs and saying the prayer. Um, so that, like the recovering had all that kind of connotation for me. So when you said recovered, it was like, well, what I can't, there's a, there's a, like a, two levels of like cognitive problem. They're like, wait a minute. I'm always going to be an addict, right? I'm always going to be, I can't ever use again. Right. And um, the explanation was like, right. Like that's, that's not the piece that's contested here. We would agree with people in recovery that are recovering that you're not, you're not ever at a point where you can just go drink and get high and be fine. Right. But it's the recovering from the piece that can be different is your mental state within recovery. That was the piece that really spoke to me. Right, Um,
0: yeah. So that's, you know, they're talking about when they talk about a psychic change that you will no longer have the obsession to do drugs. And then later in the book, both in the 10th step and in the 12th step, it talks about being able to go where anyone else can go, provided your motivations are right, you're not avoiding temptation. Language is quite strong. Instead, the problem has been removed. You know, the suggestion okay. is that the problem in your mind is removed, um, but the problem in the body isn't removed. Right. So, okay. just for the audience, I think at some point, you know, we'll have to dedicate maybe an episode to talking about anomalies. Um, talking about what? Sorry. sorry. Anomalies. Oh yeah you know, where this doesn't seem to be apply, Um, but let's, we'll postpone that, but just for the audience to know that we're aware that there are outlying phenomena around all this stuff. Right. Um, Yeah, and so, you know, with Don Pritz, he says, he says to me that, you know, I'm not crazy, I'm just suffering from untreated alcoholism. And then he's also famous for having quipped the leading cause of relapse is not, is sobriety. Sobriety is the leading cause of relapse. And so, you know, to hear these things and then to be coming out of a culture that's both a a AA culture, but also a um, clinical culture that says that, you know, she has good sobriety or he's got, 30 years of sobriety, mm-hmm. you know, right there, there's this tension that even the 12-steppers I know don't really make much of it because you're not really defining recovery versus sobriety and you're leaving it out there that you know we're trying to achieve sobriety as though the first step read, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, therefore our lives have become unmanageable as opposed to, and our lives have become unmanageable. Meaning, if the reason my life's unmanageable is vodka, then the solution to that is to put down the vodka, right? And and there's just this huge confusion about this. I mean, no one ever really talks about this. So, I mean, to me, that in itself is sort of the value
1: of this word recovered because it pushes that envelope right and i think you're doing similar work when you're making this distinction between re- recovery and sobriety It's sort of pointing to the same difference yeah right like if i just don't have vodka or weed or lsd or whatever in me then i'm in one state of mind and that should solve all my problems for me like hallucinogens and weed and or more of a problem i guess than the clonopin or <laughs> more of a problem than the alcohol um but the idea was, if you don't have those in your mind, then you're not hearing voices and you're not seeing things that aren't real and you're not having these, you know, panic attacks or whatever that send you to the nuthouse. Um, so then your problem should be solved. And that was kind of true because I wasn't having those problems anymore. But it was also not true because I was miserable all the time. Well, and, and even some of those problems reared their head for you. They, yeah, they did. After time, with enough time and isolation, they started to creep back in. So, I mean, I
0: think one thing that we're really speaking to here is that we don't have a working definition of recovery. Mm-hmm. And so the one that I've come up with and have been using the last few years is recovery is the identification, it means assuming abstinence, but it's the identification of... It's the identification and resolution of the factors that drove the addiction to begin with, that gave rise to the addiction to begin with. And so, step work can largely be imagined as, you know, a way of poking around in that stuff. A lot of it's, most of it's biographical and and uh, shining the light on it and you know, bringing some sort of spirituality to bear on it and sharing it, going public with it. Um,
1: and it has this profound healing effect, right? Um, yeah, it's interesting. The, it's an interesting definition. I think the place where it, it, it starts to like um, kind of come into conflict with traditional big book thinking is right where you say that there's you assume a cause for addiction
0: mm-hmm.
1: which in 12-step recovery circles generally addiction is taken as like a base fact you're born this way probably or it's just in your soul or it's just you know it might be it might be in your body in a way we haven't fully discovered um but it's it's not um it's not subject to cause <laughs> somehow, well, right? No,
0: now. I mean, and I would say if you got more purely big book, they're going to be pointing to selfishness. So right. if you unpack that, then the addict or the alcoholic is somehow selfish. And it usually doesn't really say we're more selfish, but it suggests that, it suggests Kinda. that we are, we're, we're, we've given ourselves over to a It's the self-will run riot.
1: It's yeah. Sort of we've like, everybody's with... got this, but yeah. It's all a human
0: like... condition, but yeah. we have it in some different way. Yeah. Um, well, the thing about the word recovered that is so interesting is that outside of the big book, you never would see it anywhere. So, you know, it's, it's a taboo term really in a way in, in a lot of 12-step meetings. For sure. Fellowships. And it would never, ever, 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 ever come up in a clinical setting or an academic setting. Right. Um, and so, I mean, I think there's something there that is this because... Well, I think there's a bunch of reasons, but is this because we're talking about something that's essentially spiritual and that that's not the there's a sort of well there's a taboo against that in clinical circles
1: right
0: um and on a more cynical level is telling people that they have a chronically relapsing brain disease far more lucrative for drug companies and treatment centers right. and everything else than the idea that no, you can actually get to a place where you walk away from a 20 year drug and alcohol addiction
1: and are functional. Right, Meaning for them, it's sort of like if you have the right combination of chemicals going on in your brain, then all of a sudden you... Oh no, 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 you're saying that they can't conceive of an actual recovery.
0: No, they can't conceive of it. Instead, right, you. you know. So if you tell me I have a chronically relapsing brain disease, and you tell my parents that, and you tell my yeah. spouse that, and you tell me that enough, well, I'm going to conclude I have a chronically relapsing brain disease, and so the next time I relapse, it should be, it's expected. Right. So
1: it's That's how we're, lo- it goes. we're lowering the bar on what's possible for an right. that. Right. Right. For sure. Whereas the term "recovered" from a state of mind and body suggests that a very different kind of sobriety experience is possible. Yeah. then I would say it's just a recovery, right? Yeah.
0: The recovery is actually possible. Right. And that means that you're not, you're not as Bob Olson once said, you don't have to spend your life huddled in fear and fellowship and that you can be functional and you, yeah. um, you can go anywhere. You can have a full life. Right. Now you're hearing a lot of, out of the clinical world, people talking about there's these gold standards of treatment and such. Um, but you don't really hear people talk about, well, what would the gold standard of recovery be? Right. And, and I think this is, you know, and, and for some people this, or this should be looked at as a possible,
1: I don't know, it's just like. Yeah, this, I mean, I think you're right this, that like it doesn't fit in, go ahead. Uh, Okay, <laughs> that's, the, that's the nature of Zoom right there. I think this is, uh, you're right, that like the the kind of recovery we're experiencing where um, you are feel sort of fundamentally transformed in your relationship to the rest of the world and the kinds of problems and anxieties that fueled sobriety before are just kind of resolved. You're different in the way you do anger, in the way you do fear. Your sex life becomes different um and you uh, have a different relationship to your past um, the things you are the sort of guilt you're carrying around you've sort of been able to address in a number of different ways um, the kind of shame that you carry is is very different different orientation towards that it's not like oh i'm a great person necessarily <laughs> it's like oh i've done some real horrible shit. but um there's, there's a shift in relationship to that that it's hard to explain it's like acknowledgement without the shame or something um, and the utility of your history to help other people becomes into play. Um, but it really it is this next level kind of experience beyond just sort of suffering to stay sober and this grinding experience all the time. Um, right. but that's never going to be something that the drug companies are interested in or um, I think some clinicians would be interested in that would be would take to it. But you can't really write that down for an insurance provider. You can't really stay study it in clinical trials, you can't get money for it, can't exploit it, oh, so, That's no, interesting, yeah. Right? Um, but what's weird is that the taboo within 12 step circles about it. Like, I, I don't know, you, you probably have had this experience, but like going into a meeting after having a big book recovery and then using the word recovered in some other context, in an NA meeting or, a, you know, a, Whatever meaning that doesn't use the big book or doesn't sort of have that idea, and the, the meaning can quickly become about how you should never say that. <laughs> Everybody else's share is now. I would never say that I'm recovered. I'm in reco- I'm re- in recovery. I'm recovering. Those right. two terms are kind of interchangeable. Like it's always it's always that my disease is out in the parking lot doing pushups, and this it becomes like this reaffirmation of like no, we just have to remember that we're not fixed. Right. And like, it's it's almost like a threat, the possibility (laughs) that either it's they're mishearing it and they're saying like, oh, I don't have, I can take a drink now or I can smoke weed and be fine, which I'm not. Um, They might be hearing that or they might really think like, you're just on a pink cloud. I've heard that one before. You're just sort of. Or you're um, just diluted. Diluted, right. You think you're okay. And that's dangerous to think that you're okay. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, it looks like and this is just so
0: interesting. So you've got this, this, this goal, this gold standard, whatever you want to call it, of yep. being covered. And then um, you've got this movement that, that's sort of really rooted in, in, in a bunch of people having that experience. Now, once again, there's all kinds of anomalies when we start unpacking what happened with who and when and what. But suffice it to say, there was this There's this golden chain going back till 34, 35. So that's 86 years old of at least some group of people having this experience, paying it forward. And there's some sort of family resemblance between the people who get it. And then there's this rest of the the world who are either completely unaware of this, uh, hostile to it. And then this very large group of people, and it's pretty distressing, who do shoot for it and don't get it. Right. Um, so it, it's really, it's, you know, it's a it's a kind of amazing thing that there's this, you know, religious studies would is much more appropriate to to study this, but yeah, this, for sure. this, this charismatic healing thing that's happened. I mean, I call this a living spiritual tradition because the experiences of the founders continue to be replicated, Right. even though there's this giant institution like a church that's merged around it that only pays lip service to it or doesn't believe really and understand it, and yet has all these faithful church attendees. Right. Well, this is
1: interesting because now you're sort of pushing into another sphere, right? We've talked about 12-step culture and how it's sort of resistant to the idea of spiritual change and didn't sort of next level recovery and we've talked about clinical world and its sort of resistance or in, inability to kind of even conceive of this sort of thing but now you're sort of talking about the church which is where a lot of meetings are in church basements and stuff um and the church christian church has this long history of like um evangelical awakenings and mysticism and spiritual experiences. And certainly the belief structure is about, you know, God intervening in human affairs and changing our lives for the better. But when we talk about it, it doesn't seem to be like the kind of spirituality that's happening in the basement and the kind of spirituality that's happening on Sunday mornings. They don't seem to really, there's a lot of work being done to try to make those fit together better, but there's something happening in the basement that's not happening upstairs. (laughs) (laughs) Right. <laughs> heard that many times yeah yeah from right. from
0: ministers right and for a number of reasons so you know in preparation for this talk one of the things I did was you know and we're we'll probably going to reference this a bunch did mm-hmm. there's this this monster called writing the big book that's how big it is yeah. and um, one of uh, this is by a guy who's a trained archivist is that right I can't remember, yeah. William, William Scheiberg. And um, what he points out early in the book is, unlike a lot of spiritual movements, AA is super, super well-documented and not very well-old. So not very old. So we have all these archives. We really, if you get into it, you can really find out what happened on what day. And you can see how the, the received wisdom about AA within AA is actually somewhat at variance with what actually happened. Okay, so it's a great book if you're into this stuff. This is a fantastic resource. Now the bibliography in here is, um, you, you know, not the bibliography, the notes and the appendices. It's really extensive. I mean, this is solid academic work. Nowhere in the index is the word recovered nowhere does this issue of recovered come up for this guy so i mean that strongly suggests given how thoroughly is that this recovered recovering thing wasn't going on this this debate right to start right so bill was able to write a book that referenced being recovered referenced having a psychic change referenced being um you know, able to go anywhere anybody else can go. Um, We aren't fighting it. Neither are we avoiding temptation. All this stuff. He was able to write this. And he had no, he had no
1: scruples about the way medical people were going to respond to it. Right. If anything, he had the support of his doctor at Towns, Dr. Silkworth, who was like, this is great. And you got to write about it. And this is the thing.
0: Yep. He had that support. And then he had his, you know, his wing of the Oxford group in Akron that was doing this. And then
1: he had his little
0: group of people in New York and-
1: And then later, Harry Thibault, the psychiatrist who was helping him, also was super, like, there wasn't this kind of conflict between these different models that we're talking about. Right. He could go to the church, and then he could go to a psychiatrist, then he could go to his doctor, and they were all on board. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we're covering, and recovered as the antidote to that can only arise later out of a historical process that starts with, um, I think, I think in, in New York where not everybody likes the God stuff and not everybody wants to even have the big book say anything about God and people oh, yeah. don't want to get into the steps or all that. Cause it's too, too Oxford groupy, and those people are wing nuts and, um, you know, I mean, my is, read of it is around 1940
0: 41, mm-hmm. for several historical reasons, AA mushrooms across the country. Right now, you have rapid yeah, growth. Yeah. And you have the discovery, which was a discovery that many people could stay sober. Right. Through religious attendance to meetings. Right. And Show then, up at the
1: meeting, you can stay sober, and that's what it becomes
0: about. So then it's just don't drink, go to meetings, ask for help, ninety and ninety, yada yada yada. Uh. And the people that were <clears throat> trying to have fidelity to this become an ever shrinking minority. Right. And I think you see this like in Ernie Kay's "Not God" book because he kind of reflects the sentiment that the people he'll call them the Akron Genesis. So these are the the remnants of the Oxford Group that broke off and yeah. He kind of turns them into fanatics or they're excessive or right. they're, they're fundamentalist or something along those lines. So it's all pejorative. Right.
1: Um, I mean, you can understand that perspective, right? And I, people, if you come into 12 step recovery like I did and don't do any of the 12 steps like I did and you're just staying sober and you're miserable, but you figure, well, that's sobriety. It's not going to be, you know, fireworks every day.
0: Yeah, you might uh, just say that's life.
1: That's life. That's yeah. just how life goes. Right. Then somebody comes along and says, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you yeah. need to come to the spirituality and na, na, na. That's not going to, that doesn't have a, an appeal um, if you're no. newly, if you're comfortable within the the level of sobriety that you've got. The it funny. only becomes appealing when you hit some crisis in that that sobriety and are desperate for something more.
0: That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And and even if the person, let's assume the person carrying this message is two years into recovery and they're not strident at all. Let's just say yeah, they just kind of went through this transformation right before the meeting's eyes and nobody can really... Well, you can doubt it and doubt it, but as the years goes by, you can't doubt it. Right. And you're either gonna have to explore what they're doing, or take an even harder stand against what they are. Right. Or just do something that you don't. You just avoid it. You just don't really deal with it.
1: Right. Well, that's that weirdo. Right. Bracket it off from your own experience. You can say, oh, well, some people." Who knows? And because
0: this thing's only eighty-six years old, you know, you and I are actually, you know, we're, we're very much part of an early history of something. Sure. Right. And it was true for you, but it was truer for me, even though there's only six years different or something. That you know, when I when I started doing this. Um, In Maine, there was nobody doing this. Now, I'm sure there's some viewers that are going to be really offended by that. (laughs) But um, it was, you know, if you talk God, big book, amends, recovered, all that, you would, you would, you you just would arouse uh, antipathy. And here we are all these years later, and, you know, that's changed to some degree. Um, it's changed quite a bit actually, but it's also created another a whole other
1: set of issues in its wake. Yeah, which I think we should probably dive into. Yeah. At some point. Maybe now. Maybe that's the transition.
0: Well, I think the one thing that's behind recovered that, that we might want to talk about is the whole notion of a dry drunk. Right. So the implication when when Don P says the leading cause of relapse is the sobriety is that sobriety, mere sobriety, is to be in dry drunk territory. So that seems to be the dance partner with Recovered. And there doesn't seem, I mean, obviously there's gray areas in between, we can get into that later,
1: but the big book never talks about dry drunks. It's almost like they, it, it's too new for them to know that that's a possibility. It's before the rapid expansion you're talking about. And it's well, before for, they had people come to meetings that didn't want to do it. And they just like, well, I'll stick around, hang out.
0: Or they were never exposed to anything but that. Right. Um, and, and yet I would say my experience professionally, the dry drunk is, that's the larger issue. Right that the dry drunk thing is either going to lead to relapse or give rise to other process addictions or mental, emotional disorders um, and all that goes with that in terms of relationships and dysfunctionality. Right. And that many, 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 maybe I would say a majority of the people I've worked with in all those years are people that have gotten sober for x amount of time went into this dry drunk territory and relapsed and back and forth back and forth right i would say a a large majority of those people well a majority anyway weren't aware that that's what was actually happening to them
1: right yeah you don't have they don't have it was certainly When I went to that meeting and listened to the the text being read and people share about their experiences, and when you walked me through those pieces of it, it was like something being named that I didn't know could exist. And it was named by people who were experiencing it, and I believed. I believed you that you had had as much suffering as I was experiencing and didn't have it anymore. I believe that. I believe that from Mike. I believe that from the people in the meeting. I could see it in them and the way they carry themselves and talked and the energy that sort of happened in that basement. Um, And you were saying, you, you, this is, we're not special people. We just believe that this was possible and did a few things. And that the gate is wide open to you right here. And not everybody has that experience of being introduced to this, right? You can very easily go to meetings for your entire life and never really have that introduced to you yeah i will say this like if you don't mind um there's this piece about because the big book doesn't sort of yet doesn't anticipate the possibility of the dry drunk it also seems to like define obsession in turn and like craving in terms that are very specific to like the the not yet sober and doesn't sort of look at what happens to obsession to someone who's sober over a long period of time. And in my, for me, in my case, it didn't look like every day I really wanted to get high. I, I definitely heard that from people in NA, like I wanna use today, yeah. like, you're here with me, right? Um, but I think for me, maybe for a lot of people that they're sort of, we enter this period of being sober by default, not really wanting to get high anymore because we know how much it fucks us up, but not wanting to be sober and feel this way either. And then searching for some other substance or behavior that will scratch the itch. So you get people going off into all kinds of other addictions. um, Or just like being horribly depressed over a long period of time. Right. Or some combination of both, like these fits of depression followed by like wild affairs or something, or um, spending a bunch of money at the casino or whatever it is, like um, eating in a certain way compulsively. Um, And like, I think the piece that's like, the piece that really hooked me more than like the, the obsession to use will cause you to relapse. I, I, I could point to that a couple of times, but they're sort of in my past. The piece that really hit me was, they are restless, irritable, and discontented, unless they can again experience the ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a few drinks. That was like, right. Like I am always fucking miserable and I've not ever in sobriety captured that beautiful feeling that I used to get when someone says, hey, a bag's on the way. Like, I, there wasn't anything in recovery that, that felt as good. I mean, everything else was shit, but that little moment of knowing it's coming was beautiful. And like, that's where my ease and comfort came from. And I had no ease and comfort in sobriety, right? And so that was what spoke to me. It wasn't like, you're always relapsing because you can't get this thing. Um, I know that speaks to a lot of people who are in that condition, but for those of us that can move into dry drunk for years, it's not so much like the present specter of like relapse, which is still there. We just don't know it, but it's this like suffering that has no antidote over years and years and years and years, no little moments of relief. Right. And the promise of of a recovery where you just sort of live in a state of relief is like,
0: shocking right and to experience that where the relief is actually becomes more of the norm than the misery right right um yeah so the book does sort of point at a dry drunk in that place you just mentioned which we'll probably yeah. end up talking about a lot we right. call it a grid, restless irritable and discontent and it's it's just such a god if you don't you know if you don't you don't read till page one if you don't read the doctor's opinion you, you miss that paragraph which you know is as important as anything in the book yeah and it doesn't say some alcoholics are restless irritable discontent it really is suggesting that alcoholics as a class are restless irritable discontent unless they can then have the ease and comfort um it also makes reference to what i, I think it's making reference to a dry drunk way back in um uh I think it's page 152. Um, It's a vision for you. Now and then a serious drinker being dry. Dry, he says, at the moment, I don't miss it at all. Mm -hmm. Feel better, work better, having a better time. As ex-problem drinkers, we smile at such a sally. We know our friend is like a boy whistling in the dark to keep up his spirits. He fools himself. Inwardly, he would give anything to take a half dozen drinks and get away with them right so there is some awareness but it doesn't get fleshed out and you get you're left with the impression that they weren't whatever the fellowship was between 35 and 39 they weren't spending a lot of time debating doing the 12 steps or just staying sober or and there was it was all that just wasn't there right it
1: hadn't come onto the scene yet really
0: No, but I think um, just with the time we have, maybe for the sake of our audience, we might wanna talk about our own experience of being a dry drum. Because one of the things that really hooked me was when Don P described his own experience being dry. What he said was, he would sometimes you know, get the feeling really sorry for himself and go to a meeting and, and seeking relief and fellowship. And then he would get there and he would feel like nobody liked him and that everybody was judging him. And, and mm-hmm. Now suddenly he can read people's minds and that's all bad. And he's watching the clock and he, he went there looking for relief and now he can't wait for the thing to be over so he can leave. You know you're uncomfortable alone you're uncomfortable with people um that that nailed me yeah there was this like self-consciousness and awkwardness that was
1: pretty much there all the time yeah it's a constant base state of worrying about how people are perceiving me and feeling like <sighs> hungry for something that i don't know what it is and like this is sort of relentless grind of thoughts that's like a like a rat running circles around your head scratching at the walls just um i think you i think the piece of like self-obsession like the constant the, the thoughts are always going inward in ways that um i wouldn't have ever noticed it until i had been out of it and could look back right? It's only really post-step experience that I can look back on this kind of thinking and realize it was just this like <laughs> everything, er, it, there wasn't like really an outside world. It was just like things that were affecting me and things that were perceiving me and um, this constant discomfort about who I was and how I felt and which could actually be like the, the preoccupation with how I'm feeling and how to make it different could actually be the cause of the suffering, Right. But no insight on that. There's just like waking up in the morning, wishing I hadn't, flopping on the bed to the coffee pot, having a drink, and then the the thoughts get ripping and roaring, and it's like oh, all the shit that I gotta deal with today, and people I might have to see that I have a you know a relationship with that's not good, <laughs> um, mostly because my own projections on them that I can't recognize yet, but it's like. People hate me, people fucking suck. My job sucks, girlfriend sucks. Life just sort of sucks. And then I did the same thing with meetings. I would go to them and sort of like dump all this stuff on the floor and then someone else would do the same thing. Right. And that was like, I didn't like those people. I didn't want to hang out with those people, But but I was those people and I didn't like me and I didn't want to hang out with me either.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you can get some relief with gallows humor and you can get not small relief from eating too much. You can numb yourself out, Mm -hmm. smoke, and you can masturbate and you can do all these things. So, you know, what I see, and you make a very, 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 very important point that it's very hard to see that stuff as addiction or the profundity of it. Until you have relief from it, right? And relief cannot be temporary because that's Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Relief has to be like a stable mm-hmm. state that right. moves forward with you. Right. Um, what I what I see now, the way I see it now, is when I watch clients, is that this conditioning to you know i just use clinical terms now because they actually seem more appropriate um that if you if you have rid if this is some sort of base state when you're sober then you're in pain and because you're in pain you want relief from the pain that is a primary drive there, in fact there's it's totally normal i'm in pain i need to take care of the pain before i can be a husband or a father or a student or whatever yeah sure. and so when you see people get sober They are so conditioned in that, that they use any means at their disposal to try to take the edge off of how they feel, which, you know, cigarettes and getting in the front of the lunch line and your chess game and, and these, these little things that you perseverate on that are going to make you feel a little bit better, start becoming really big and important and they become the source of a lot of conflict. If somebody beats you at the chess game or cuts in front of you in the lunch line or all your cigarettes and you know this is interesting because is putting how I feel ahead of everything selfish well yeah you could say that but if the reason I'm putting how I feel ahead of everything is because I'm in pain then that's a lot more understandable you know we don't have to get all there's pain here And this person is just trying to respond to the pain. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just call it affect regulation, but I will, you know, I'll talk about selfishness in relationship to that as well.
1: Right. I like to, I still like calling it self-obsession. I think because like, it is a more abstract thing to call it. Right. You're totally right that it is like, I'm suffering. I'm trying to make myself feel better. Right. And if we're talking about causes of addiction that we can sort of identify within the life of the addict, that's a pretty good place. Right. That sort of suffering that it can't seem to fix. Yeah. Um, so if recovery is the, the treatment of that. And that's what we're that's the deal. And with um, the overwhelming majority of addicts, they will tell you that the RID was there. Yeah. Before the first drink was there. Right. You know? Right. The, the, the getting high is like, the oh, wow, this this fixes that. Yeah. Right. It's the and I yeah, think comes okay. along. And there's stories where, right. you know,
0: we stole dad's booze and got sick and drunk right. and big trouble, and I couldn't wait to do it again. So that suggests right. that despite the consequences and the vomiting and all that, there's something here that
1: you're getting right. relief from something in a big it's way. It's treating the pain. It's treating. Yeah. It's treating the pain. The
0: pain. Yeah.
1: Right. And that's kind of um,
0: taboo, you see, in, in a more classically big book sense, you know, older school of 12-stepper, hardcore 12-stepper, if you start moving down towards that, you know, I was in pain at 11 years old, that's why I smoking weed every day, they mm. get a little wary with that because they don't want you to victimize yourself too much because right. it goes against the, the
1: principle of personal accountability right well and also isn't necessarily super helpful there's definitely a way of, of there's a way of acknowledging your victimhood that is super helpful there's another way of like sort of wearing or using victimhood to sort of keep yourself trapped in that self-obsession like the reason that i like the term self-obsession is that it's like well that's that's the origin of the pain and like my experience, at least, is this constant thinking of myself and how I feel. Like the pain is almost a simulacrum, in a way. I mean, I understand that it's like the social origins of the stuff too, but I'm I'm left in this state where um, thinking about how to fix me is the pain that I'm trying to fix myself from. Meaning, like I'm sitting in a ca- cafe all day, smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee, and trying to figure myself out in my journal. Yeah, like writing all these Lonely. theories about yeah and going to the shrink and talking for endless hours about how you know what my latest theory is about what's wrong with me and but, it's like that cycle but the thing of it is, is I can't stop doing that
0: right and so I mean, that's you know that's another thing we'll probably talk about in a future episode but yeah. I'm as powerless over that as I am what happens to me after I have a drink for sure So I think we covered kind of a good intro territory. Yeah, Um, there's
1: definitely threads here that'll be fun to follow up on.
0: And one thing I would invite the audience to do if people start getting into this is to, don't hesitate to on Facebook or wherever, to uh, comment or maybe ask about points you'd like to see discussed.
1: Right, for sure. It would be nice if there was a, a we could be responsive to what people were thinking about all this. So we yeah. answer questions and stuff.
0: All right. All right. Good chat. Away we go.
1: Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Barry. Bye, everybody.
0: Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.